You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because otherwise, what are spreadsheets even for? I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm Natanya Barron, and this is episode 120, World Bibles and the Gospel According to Tolkien. I am far from, you know, a Tolkien acolyte in general, even though, you know, he is sort of the godfather of the absurdist world building of of fantasy. I mean, that just I, I, I appreciate that there just is all this lore that exists, that somebody can be that much of a nerd slash scholar on the subject. And, you know, that's that's the dream, isn't it? That's that's always it is what we want very much so very much so so that's a great segue (laughs) but does anyone have any announcements before we we dive into that and if not marshall can just cut this bit out and the segue will sound flawless we've made it that's i mean we've transitioned (laughs) right this is this is our our new our new form our new three-headed form our announcement we have a new logo we have a new normal right we have a new logo we do yes Um, I've been enjoying meeting. It's gorgeous, Natanya. I've been meeting some people on the Discord. We're planning some potentially fun merch-related things at some point. So those are fun announcements. I love that you just casually drop that. (laughs) Like people are going to go nuts when they hear it, and you just sort of slide it right. Keeps me accountable. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) That's why we're doing an anthology. Because we said we would on air, and which I've officially submitted my story to. So there's that too. Now we have to start editing them. Hopefully, listeners, by the time you hear this, we have already started editing them. But right now, as we record, it's still the holidays, and it's the liminal zone between years when nothing has meaning. So it, it's. I find it to be a good time for imagining and thinking things. And in traditional publishing, nothing ever gets done I during agree. these weeks. I, I am just fascinated by those sorts of things. Like, I think probably way too much about the fact that in the U.S., Saturdays are like a dead day as far as like new television goes. But in England, it's Saturdays are like the day. The day. And similarly, there's no TV in the in the U.S., on Christmas Day, like nothing, but that's a huge day, huge day for for dropping a big special event in England. And again, how did th- how did this happen? What are the, what were the cultural factors that shaped these these things? And that's that's fascinating. Was it me. two great countries separated by a common language? I think yeah. is one of the quotes, and it, it does feel like that for sure. And people's just—I mean, I work for an international company, and people's ideas of time off, um, but also oh they love this like blue laws. I still live in a blue law state where you know you can't buy wine at the grocery store before noon because you might bring it to church or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's just like so. They, literally, they cordon off some of the areas at the grocery stores, like. I bought it yesterday. I can drink it today. So, yeah, it's anyway. before noon on Sundays only in Texas. But then, 
the rest of the week and get it at 7 a.m. and that's fine. But yeah. you know. <laughs> if you're really going to drink at church, I feel like uh, it's going to be a flask situation. So yeah. Wine and you probably prepared more than yeah. like an hour in advance. <laughs> I mean, and that's the thing. If you're going to drink in church, they want you to at least have had the decency to think about it ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> the different definition of holy water. Um, hey, transubstantiate this. <laughs> oh God, I get Marshall. Oh no, oh, no. We've, we've lost Marshall. I'm sure that's some kind of heresy at some point. Probably. I, I escaped Catholicism, so. <laughs> I, I was raised Methodist. We had Welch's grape juice and oyster crackers for communion. Yeah, yeah, I... I my religious background is too complex to go into one episode. <laughs> um, but I've always been tangent, like fringe Catholic. So my whole mm. French Canadian family is Catholic and they're very Catholic. They're like old world Europe Catholic where all the swear words are, are, are religious swears. Like you could drop every F-bomb in the world. They don't care. But you say tabernacle and your grandmother will backhand you. Like, wow, it's wild. It's wild. So. Yeah, we can talk about this. <laughs> okay, so religion episode coming up. We're religion gonna, episode. Love that topic. We're going to pencil that in. <laughs> but for today, we're talking today. about... The whole wide world. The whole wide world. The, whole wide the world. structure. The organization. The the habit. The recording. The posterity of world building. As you build this thing, how do you keep yes. all the things you're building straight? And I feel like this is a question we get asked with some regularity when we do like the Q&A episodes or or things... Um, at conventions or even just on the Discord, people are always looking for like tools. And that's usually when I look at Marshall, because if you ask me, how do I keep track of my world building? My answer would be poorly. (laughs) I mean, it's certainly one of those things where I feel like people are constantly trying to figure out the best way to put their information together. And I feel... Like, it's one of those situations where Google is not going to be any help at all, Mm -mm. because there are a ton of different quote-unquote resources out there, but most of them are garbage, and they're, they're garbage in different ways. Like, some of them, they're garbage because really they're trying to sell you whatever, like, software or tool box that they've made that doesn't really suit anybody's needs are you suggesting that capitalism is interfering with artistic expression yes (laughs) stunned i'm stunned what a novel concept i'll have to think about this for a while (laughs) or it's you know or they're just whoever put it together i don't want to use the word rank amateur but yeah they're probably somebody who hasn't quite worked out themselves what the steps and process of putting together your world building information should be. I, I ranted about this on the discord. And because when I came across this, I just got inchoate with rage about, <laughs> about how terrible this was. Cause, and this was one of the first Google things I look cause every once in a while, I just look up to see if there's some new kind of tool out there that might be useful. And so I Googled a little while ago and came across one of the first things. And it was a questionnaire, which A questionnaire is a perfectly good way to start things, you know, to get you to think. And the first question, number one question was, are there forests? And I'm just like, why? What? Because, 
Yes. Are there forests? I mean, A, it's just a yes or no question where the answer is either <laughs> going to be yes or my world is so complexly different from everything ecosystem-wise that we know that this is not a useful question to ask to start. So either way, who thought that that was a good place to start? And But I did find that so many of them sort of use this questionnaire type format to ask more granular things in yes or no form where like the answer is yes and you've you've gained no further insight in even thinking about this yes or no question like and it'd be one where there was another one was like are there forests are there mountains are there deserts are there swamps? It's like, or, or are yes. they all single biozone <laughs> planets like in Star Wars? Like, <laughs> yeah. And a lot of times, also, it did not seem like the people who put this together had clarity in their minds of like, are these questions about the whole world, or is this a question about a town or a country or whatever? Like the way the questions were phrased and the way everything was laid out, it could go either way. And yeah, like. Does my city have public parks is a very different question than are there forests? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like it it speaks to the things that are, that world building actually is, which is is not just like coloring in bits on on a map, even though that is fun. And I like that part. But it's the figuring out how the society made itself, like how the things that make character and plot created themselves. Yeah, I feel like there's a tendency like I feel like the desire to have all these these templates and to have like the right way to organize your world building is very much part of a lot of other publishing things, which is like, people get the idea that if I can do this right, then that's the secret. And if I get yeah. the secret right, then I'm in and everything will be perfect. And <laughs> and we so badly want there to be a right answer, right? In, in all kinds of bookmaking and publishing things. And there pretty much never is. <laughs> there is no secret, secret gate to open. There is no secret... Um, you know, computer program that will perfect your world building. But there are things you can use. Yeah. And and I and I think for me, I think I'm I'm more organized than I give myself credit for. I think we we often are just the worst to ourselves when it comes to this sort of thing. Like, you know, we all have this well, those of us who aren't complete narcissists usually have a healthy dose of imposter syndrome. Um <laughs> but it brings me back to what we were talking about a little bit last week and and kind of this like getting lost in world building for world building sake like there's nothing actually inherently wrong with doing that as long as it's serving the story that you're telling and that the characters are benefiting from this world building that tends to be when i need more help because i do a lot in my brain especially when i'm doing retellings i don't need a primer on 1812 regency england i don't like i i know in my mind the language the, the outfits the terrain if I need a map to tell how long it is from, you know, Shropshire to London, I'll figure it out. Um, don't necessarily need that. But when I'm doing something, um, I find that distances are one of the biggest things that I need to understand very early in my books because I love travel. I love I love characters that can get out of move. Um, I did. It's a book that it's half done. I never know where it's going to go. But I, I wanted to build a full city. And I realized 20,000 words into this book, like I was not going to get anywhere without a real map, like an actual map 
that I could do. And I, I did. I, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I have skills in, in, in graphic design. I was able to use Illustrator and some of the wonderful tools that are online. And then that was my Bible, you know, talk about world Bibles. That was the most important part because the entire story took place in this one city. And I needed a very concrete visual understanding versus the shorthand of everything else that I do in, in non-secondary world settings or in, you know, world building of, of, of other, of other assets from, that are already kind of established. So what I, what I think is important is to know as a writer, what the, the, what tools are going to serve you best to actually meet the needs of your narrative and your characters versus should I spend 30 hours deciding if it's, you know, <laughs> is it a rainforest <laughs> or is it a, you know, subtropical forest or is it something else? Is that going to help you today? Um, and then have a place where you can kind of build that out uh, as well uh, with other tools. And, and I think, it, again, I am a serial technological tool nerd. I I have no allegiance anywhere, different books. I use different tools, but it's so much about finding what works for you. And sometimes it's just a spreadsheet. Sometimes it's just a checklist, you know? It's bullet points for me. I, I Bullet point lists are basically all of how I keep track of things and for me, it tends to be like, what do I need to know about this world it tends to come from the the politics and the religion, because those are, for some reason, the things that always end up driving my mm-hmm. plots. And so I sort of tend to start there, because otherwise, if I know the aesthetic, if I have a strong enough sense of the world and what it looks like, what it feels like, based on whether it's based on real history, like the Avon cycle has been, or taking inspiration from like Shakespeare's London, like the project that um, I've been working on for a while is... If I know what it looks like and feels like enough, I can then access the answers I need. If I then need to ask myself, oh, are there public parks? I can get to the answer quickly if I just have the right sense of the aesthetic. The things I actually have to write down are the things that I do really need to track, like which god is in charge of which magical element? Uh, what are the powers associated with that? What did I say about this? The map too. Oh my god, like I have to have I have to have a city map. I have to have a world map. I have to know those things. But it's never like, for me, it's never like, I'm going to sit down and write everything about this world all at once. It's as you I collide into that. things. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, you can, but you'll spend 40 years doing it and end up with an RPG manual rather than a novel, which is not a bad thing. For, I have a very dear friend who admits that, like, he can't write narratives at all, but he loves just writing worlds in that kind of mm-hmm. way, just like statting out a world or a city or something. And he's very good at that. And that's why he's a great um, DM. But it's a diff- like it's a different different realm of operation. Well, and I think it's important also that, I mean, when we're talking about this, while we've, you know, mostly had, you know, we are all novelists and we've mostly had novelists on here. The process of world building is not limited just to novel writers. And, you know, there's plenty of, we have so many people on the Discord who are RPG people and thus being more, stat driven and you know template driven is a part mm-hmm. of that process because you know you have to in rpgs to some degree quantify what things what things are and what things mean i mean you both of you brought up you know needing a map of the city map of the world like so many of those those yes or no questions boiled down to shouldn't you just have a map and that's the best part to be i mean making a map of my world is such a blast oh it's so it's much fun so much fun <laughs> It's where I get out of control because I want to start telling stories all over this map. And I can't, that's not, that's not always good storytelling. Um, that's not often good storytelling. <laughs> if it's just but everywhere. that is how I know, 
that a map is working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, because I've done, like, I have on my hard drives so many maps that will probably never be anything. But it's when that process of putting together the map starts to spark that sort of like, oh, this could be this. Or, you know, then what kind of what kind of stories come out of there? And that's, I think, a lot of where the magic is. I mean, like the process of just doing that and then coming up with names of places and then letting that be the seeds that you're planting in your sandbox even though you should not plant seeds in a sandbox. That's the <laughs> metaphor I'm going for. Maybe succulents will grow in the sandbox, but yeah. And having that be how you find where the stories are and that there can be. And I think that's part of the the secret of it also, of all the things we're talking about. People are like, you know, we've had people on the podcast be like, you don't need to know about the continent across the sea or something. And it's like, okay, true, you don't, but... Knowing that it's there and then having in the back of your mind also just percolate, but what stories could be from that continent? I think that's what gives a world a richer place, even if you don't come up with, uh, you know, a thick, you know, bound glossary and, and, you know, atlas and all all the stuff that, you know, you would compile within a world Bible or, or a saga bible as it were and then you know have all that written down in a way that makes sense to other people even if it's not in such you know well-organized documents it still exists in your head and that process alone i think enriches the world that you're building absolutely i I think i mean it's kind of early to, to, to invoke tolkien's name already but i remember when I was 14, I mean, I, I just know the moment that like, I knew I wanted to do something of this level. I had read versions of the books of, of the Lord of the Rings that did not have a, a, a map. And then my friend got the red leather bound version that has that huge fold out map uh, in, in color. Like it's got red, black, and sort of gray. And it's, you know, Tolkien's own very classic illustration style. And I remember folding it out and it was really this breathtaking moment of like, I could see every place that these characters that I loved an absurd amount, um, team Marion Pippin, by the way, um, <laughs> my favorite part of the story. The um, correct answer. <laughs> the correct, well, I read the books out of order. That's another conversation for another day, but that's very much why I love them the most. But, um, you know, that to, to be able to see where the Rohirrim were and how far away that that was from Gondor and like this, the, the scale of it was, it did something to my brain. Like it really did. I've seen maps before, huge Lewis fan. I remember looking at a map of Care Paravel and all the you know, different places in Narnia, but Narnia doesn't never felt like it had borders, right? Narnia, to me anyway, always felt very amorphous yeah. because it kind of is that sort of story. You're coming in and out of all these stories. There's this flexibility to it that, that you don't see. And of course, because Tolkien was probably on the spectrum um just gonna say that <laughs> or i like to claim him as you know one of the neurodivergents uh as as part of our tribe um but he did know like within a foot pretty much of some of that and when you're reading the language i remember reading out loud um fellowship of the ring to my to my son and he's describing the dells and valleys and tree lines and he knows where he's walking in that map and that's just that's just incredible to me. It's interesting that you you say that was sort of your like world builder moment. Like I want to build worlds like this because for me, it links into something 
that Marshall kind of mentioned, which is different different purposes for world building. It's not always about a novel. It's not always about a game. For me, it was seeing visual world building, which is something that happens, you know, TV, movies, uh, graphic novels, all these sorts of things. And for me, it was it was the original Star Wars, the first time I saw that, because so much care was taken in every shot of that movie with the objects that are there, the the way things are laid out, the the different denizens of that cantina, you know. And even though the lore wasn't all there at the time, like the, the lore behind all of those denizens of the cantina had not been fully written at that time. I'm pretty sure they all have their own backstories by now, individually, each and every one. But at that time, they didn't have that lore behind them. But the people making that movie knew it was important for the world to look lived in, for there to be weathering on things and, and for there to be just crammed in every corner of this location, different, different, you know, stuff, just stuff. I like stuff. And it made that world feel so big, which was what I loved about it. I could tell that this galaxy had so many stories in it. And we were just seeing one, you know, we're seeing one slice of the story. But there were so many other ones out there. And I thought, I want to do that. I want to make worlds like that. Um, and not being a person with any talent in, like, creating physical objects, I had to do it with words <laughs> instead. I couldn't go into, like, prop building. But I think it's fascinating. And, and I have a friend who's a prop builder. I love when she, like, shares stuff from behind the scenes and in, in her line of work. And I love seeing behind the scenes features about those sorts of things, like how they decided, like, stuff needs to go places. And it's so great for, for so many movies and TV shows that have that attention to detail. And I, I notice it when it's not there. And I super notice it when it is there. The other one popping in my head is not fantasy, but it's such spectacularly good historical world building. Uh, is the Dairy Girls, because those houses are so very much of their time. It is a crowded 1990s house, and just like every little detail in every corner communicates the era so perfectly. And I just love things like that. That's that's what sparks it for me is thinking about what's in all the corners, what's what's up, what's there, and what are the stories behind it. That reminds me, you you are both familiar with with the Bill and Ted test. Yes. For for our listeners who don't know, there's a bit in the first Bill and Ted movie where when they kidnap um, Beethoven, where, you know, they kidnap him from, you know, a little concert where he's giving and the people listening to the concert are in very authentic um, 18th century Germany. Like, you know, th this is me not knowing shit. <laughs> Whatever year and place... They're kidnapping Beethoven from. They've done the costumes perfectly for a five second shot that the idea that, you know, they would not have put that sort of care and work into making sure that the costumery was perfect for this shot would have been completely understandable. But at the same time, they got it right. And think of like, hey. If this movie, which is a stupid movie, I mean, I love it dearly, but it is... Good stupid. Good stupid. Exists. It's good stupid, yes. Yeah, yeah. Can get that right, then what excuse do you have for getting it wrong in, you know, in your actual period drama? And I think that's, that's, that, and that's where the challenge comes in, right? Is, is knowing 
how close or how far you stray to the line of accuracy, what what accuracy is versus precision. I talk about this a lot when I'm when I'm giving classes on world building and history because you can't have both <laughs> and you kind of have to choose where you are on that spectrum. We're never as as frustrating as this to me, especially writing historical fiction, we're never really going to know. We we live so far removed that the environments that, that are there, those details that Cass was talking about in the background. I just watched The Holdovers last night, which takes place in 1970. We were marveling at those sets too, because everything from the architecture in the kitchens to the, the, the appliances to like the little doily strewn places, they if you knew that time, it it it's it's there. Like it still has the 60s crawling in, but it's also sort of the 70s starting to change. But you can't get lost in defining every single, I call them, you know, the belt buckles and buttons in fashion because you will lose your mind. It is best served when you think about it like a like a good shot, like in Bill and Ted, right? You want, if you probably look down to a micro level, you would start to say, well, are these buttons made of plastic or are they made of bone? Because at this point, there's no plastic, right? Well, that's not serving anyone. That's not serving the narrative. That's not serving the story. I think what's always been amazing for me is I've, I've been lucky enough to have editors who actually create world Bibles for me in some of the work that I've done. And it is so incredibly cool to see what they pick up on. It's also not just the big world building stuff, but some of the small character world building stuff. Like I have a character in my These Marvelous Beasts novellas. It's so it's alternate history, monsters as heroes. She's a Lamia, but she can completely glam glamour herself in a human form. And in the first book, I say she has four arms and, and two legs. Well, in the third book, I wrote the entire third book with her with two arms instead of four. And I had to go, and I was like, how did I? But then sure enough, I went back to the description in the, in the, in the world Bible. And the editor had said, has four arms, yellow eyes, you know, like all these very specific things, because we can lose track of that. And, and, appendages are important to remember but sometimes we get wrapped up in the stuff and then someone's going to go you said they had green eyes and now they have blue eyes and like what's going on here you go oh it's magic or you can make sure that you're being a little bit more uh consistent i tell you what nothing was was as almost terrifying to me as seeing the style sheet for for my books when that got put together because it was like holy shit i named a lot of things and people and places and someone wrote each one of them down in alphabetical order <laughs> it was just like oh oh suddenly i felt really bad i was like oh my god my poor copy editor why did i do this to you <laughs> but, but they love that too and i think yeah. a good copy editor is kind of like the auditor of the world building right I mean, it's not super glamorous, but it's it's wonderful because it helps keep us more consistent. And I know when I see those things pointed out, I remember later on, like, oh, this character was injured here. Remember that it's his right knee, not his left knee, you know, things like that. And again, little world building and big world building, they've got to both be consistent. Like that style sheet in and of itself, that is an element of putting together, you know, what your world building Bible can be because you need... You need all of that information that they, you know, put together that ideally, you know, the dream is other people put it together for you, but that isn't always an option. <laughs> but, and it's not just like a list of like, here are some weird words you used, you know, be it character names or turns of phrase or just whatever other, you know, nonsense you made up, but needing to know what that is and what context you're, you're putting that in with that is alphabetical the best way to organize that or do you need some other way to to break it down into 
into different sections and and that's the you know that's part of the challenge of like you know i have this this list of words now what (laughs) how do i make this useful to me so i don't screw up in the writing i think there's a big difference between like what's useful to you while you're writing what's useful to your copy editor while they're checking things because they just want to be able to you know control f and find whatever it is you've you've said and perhaps what you know what the readers find useful i don't know because for me the the way i approach the organization of it is my scrivener project has little fo- little folders and little files and lots of bullet point lists for the things that are the most important to me how are they organized the ones i know i'm going to click on the most are at the top <laughs> of the of the binder on the left hand side and the ones that are less important are on the bottom that is not a system that would be useful to any other human who is not sharing my brain and knowing which and i'm you know i can move them at sometimes too it's like all right i've i've I'm, we're no longer at war we're no longer talking about the legions i can move the military folder down i don't need it anymore i can move this one back up that's not useful to anyone who's not in my head but it's what's useful to me it's what enables me to find the answers i need fastest while writing I think I'm I going back to what you said earlier, Katz, too, about the the visual aspect. That's another really important part, I think, of this sort of the organization of your world building, because I'm like you, a spreadsheet can only take me so far. Like when I discovered pivot charts and spreadsheets, it was like the best moment of my life because I could suddenly create charts using data. And I, I do this in my day job and it, it makes data so much more relatable for me than just looking at, you know, long, unsortable amounts of data where I've really found recent help in that is is writing Arthuriana uh, is in a word incestuous. Um, everyone is related to everyone, and one of the things I started I love writing uh, you know ancestry trees, like looking how people are related, and then you go, oh, they are related to. Oh, I didn't think they were, but nope, they definitely also mm-hmm, are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know we haven't talked about tools yet, but the tool that I used for, for building this out is called Obsidian. And it is not, I would not call it super user-friendly. You kind of have to know your way around HTML and it's kind of markdown language and things like that. But it has a really cool visual component that shows relationships. So I have this massive web of all of my characters and how they're related to each other. So I can now hover over one character and it lights up all the other characters in that web that they're related to. Oh, that's so cool. And, and that's, I mean, it took me, two, three days of hyper-focus, but now I have that so I can kind of see the little nodes of character relationships. And and that's hugely valuable for me because, you know, anyone who's written Arthuriana, there's anywhere from 12 to 1500 nights. So I'm kind of somewhere in the middle and I do lose track and half of them have the same names and there's 35 lanes and, you know, but being able to organize data like that is is super, super, super helpful for me as a writer. But I also feel like the right kind of reader will find something like that potentially cool to look at as well in the future. So I think sometimes it can be a, a, a double, a double whammy in a good way. You hit on a keep on like once you're, you know, if you have say, you know, 15 novels all in the same setting, you're going to have built up hypothetically. hypothetically. Interesting number that you put there. (laughs) Oddly specific. You're going to have built up a fair amount of just raw data in terms of, you know, character name. You might have, I don't know, 719 named characters over the course of the whole thing of different levels of importance. And... And you do have to keep track of it, because then if you spell something wrong, God forbid, 
you spell something wrong the first time you put it into a book, then your copy editor will be like, that's the correct spelling. Even though the other 27 times this name came up in the rest of the book, you spelled it differently. The first one was right. The rest were wrong. (laughs) I did that with a section of Rome. Misspelled it. Didn't catch it in the first book. Caught it in the second one because it was only mentioned like once in the first book. And then I went, well, in my version, (laughs) in my alternate (laughs) reality, it's called this instead. Those two letters are reversed. Why? I don't know. It's an alternate world. Just leave it alone. (laughs) Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. My, my favorite is the editor notes are like, was this intentional? And you're like, no, I'm just an oh, idiot. Just like, I'm like <laughs> I appreciate the book of confidence here, but I just missed that. <laughs> you know, you have all this. But there is no way a reasonable human can keep this straight without without guide materials. And so you have to put that together and have to put it together in a way that is going to be useful to you to then go back and and access and and maybe even useful to other humans to go through god forbid you are working on a huge epic and you pass away before you finish then somebody needs to be your brandon sanderson then they're going to need far more material than is just the text of the books to be able to work your best intentions of what the rest of it should have been so you're saying I need to leave someone my world Bible in my will is is what needs to happen. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that makes me wonder tangentially. I think I can tell reading certain, especially fantasy writers, those that are and those that aren't thinking about it to that degree of <laughs> if if I croaked today and the story is not told, do I have any direction? And I think that that's like the depth of your world building is it really does range from person to person there. And and it's not always bad if it's sort of, I call it the fantasy light. A lot of sort of fairy tale adaptations are written like that. There's a king, there's some dragons, there's swords, there's knights. It's not like really specific. And it sort of, to me anyway, can kind of like actually add to that sort of dreamlike version of it. You're kind of imposing your own, like, is this 17th century armor? Is it 13th century armor? Is it 9th century armor? Well, maybe I like 9th century, 10th century armor. So I'm imagining that and that's okay. Um, It feels easier to do that, to to kind of adapt from something like that. But then there are the huge, huge epics where you're just like, especially some of the unfinished ones that I will not name and shame. We probably all know them at this point. But I, I do feel like you can out storytell the world building to the point where it doesn't feel like it's cohesive anymore. And I think that some of these really big epics that are people are trying to get their hands around, it gets to a point where it's like fractal and you no longer can get that full concept of what's happening. And so these eddies, you know, make other ones. And by the time it's done, maybe then I, I, as I get older, I wonder, is there something also kind of awesome in these books that don't end? And that world building that is really open-ended, there is something very Kubla Khan about that too, to cite, you know, <laughs> Samuel Taylor Coleridge, like fragments in of themselves are fascinating as well. So d- do we have to have a definitive line? Um, worlds are always changing, right? I'm being philosophical. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's allowed. <laughs> That's totally what we're here for. Well, so yeah, let's, let's talk then about mechanics, about how we actually do this, what the, the actual physical how, and this is a place where perhaps being an audio-based format, not a visual one, is going to hamper us slightly. (laughs) But what's the media that we do use? And what's it shaped like? What do we actually do with our organization? 
And is it always the same? Or is it different from project to project? For me, it's the same in the sense that I always want a physical printed out thing that I can, you know, that I can, you know, reference without having to open a new file and go to, you know, I need, I like that tactileness. I like the, I, you know, I like the idea of having a physical Bible that I can then flip through and, and especially if I'm on like a writing tear, that's less of a workflow disruption to my brain to be like, flip through the page and find it here than it is to like, oh, I'm going to tab away from from Scrivener to something else. And like, oh, I tabbed away. Now it doesn't exist anymore. Now all of a sudden I've been on YouTube for 45 minutes. How did that happen? Object permanence. What? Huh? What? <laughs> no, I because can see that. Because that's just how yeah. my works. The tangibility makes sense. I've not done that, but it does make sense. To me, I need the ability yeah. to control F a thing. I need to be able to like find fast. And that's easier for me in a control F situation than it is in something like a world Bible. But your world Bible is also probably pretty well organized. So you probably have the equivalent of a mental control F that you can, you know, like. I mean, it's broken into sections with tabs and everything. And, you know, Does it have an index, then... Marshall? <laughs> does it have an index? It, it does have an index, which, you know, it's <laughs> crucial. <laughs> So this is kind of kind of relevant to so just today. If you follow me on Blue Sky, you might have seen this. But based on a thing that friend of the podcast, Mike Chen, said, I dug out my old, I'm holding it up, but, you know, you all can't see this. But Gaston, is, this is, I'm holding up the Starfleet Technical Manual printed in 1975. Wow. And this is, even though it was, you know, obviously published by, you know, by Penguin, I think. Nope, Random House, sorry. Published by Random House back in the day. Like, this is such clearly like a fan labor of love that it's just absurd. But at the same time, like, and it's got, you know, everything indexed and like the level of work that's in here is far above and beyond anything anybody who actually worked on the show ever considered. (laughs) I mean... Whoever, I mean, I say whoever wrote this when it's, you know, Franz Joseph wrote this or at least put this together. I think I think this is the work of a lot of people and a lot of fan people included the entirety of the Articles of Federation. All 110 Articles of Federation of the United Federation of Planets, which is a level that nobody needed, but I love that it exists. And you know, again, goals, but you also, you want a fan base that would do that work for you. And then you can just like sort of bask in, in having that exist. But at the same time, you know, yeah, you don't need that to write your book, but having that level of information available to you in a clean, well-indexed format. And for me, I like it tangible though. I know like a wiki format would probably be easier to like go through and find things. If you're just finding things, but again, then you have to tap away to a different screen and, and that way madness lies, <laughs> especially the bigger your project comes that it's, you know, becomes its own beast and you need, you know, all this information relatively easy to get a hold of, then it becomes this, 
so big that I lost where my sentence was going. <laughs> is it an albatross? Are we going to continue with? Romantic yes, poetry? it is definitely an albatross. It's, so let's let us keep with the Coleridge because you know so many times. I mean, what is the difference between some you know someone from from Porlock knocked on your door or you accidentally tabbed away? And went to went to YouTube. It doesn't matter. You lost where you were going, and it'll never you'll never find it again. It occurs to me too so. that that the difference between like wanting the tangible object and the digital object may also depend on whether you do most of your world building beforehand. And you, of course, have your you, you need your saga bible. You need your fifteen novels worth of stuff to track. But starting from scratch, I do some world building at the beginning. And then I do more as I go, as I run into questions like, are there city parks? Um, and then I'll decide, okay, yes, there are. Uh, how many are there? Are there forests? Are there forests? Is there the... are forests. <laughs> Is there oxygen? Okay. If I hit that question that I didn't think of beforehand, but now I've got the answer and now I want to go, yes, there are probably this many parks. This is the biggest one. This one's attached to a temple, you know, whatever those details. I want to be able to add those to my existing, you know, world building documents as I'm right, you know, as I'm doing it in the drafting, so that I keep track of the details as I'm creating them, which would be much harder to do in a physical object, I think. But that's because of the way that I write and world build it a lot of it happens simultaneously, mm -hmm. um, for which the digital is better. I tend to use, I like having things in Scrivener, I, I, I would prefer to have everything kept in Scrivener, because then the tabbing away problem is much less. However, the one place that Scrivener really falls down is in bulleted lists. Mm -hmm. Scrivener, I don't know what it is. Scrivener cannot handle bulleted lists and it drives me up the wall. So I tend to do that stuff in Google Docs and, and I'll keep my, my world building things there and I'll sort of port over the most important bits, the things that aren't likely to change or need editing. I can move over into Scrivener, but... God, trying to edit Scrivener bulleted lists is just an absolute nightmare. <laughs> just, dear Scrivener, please fix that. I would give you money. <laughs> I'd give you more money. Yeah, I, I uh, <laughs> tabbed away to use the parlance uh, from from Scrivener, partially for those reasons, and also the cross. I do a lot of writing on my phone, um, which just sounds crazy, but I like to be able to just kind of type on my phone whenever I'm in, when I get really in the zone. Um, to use I, that. I, I don't know how people do that, but bless you all that can. <laughs> I think I'm just old enough of a millennial that like, I, I it makes sense to me because I totally get why it wouldn't. And I know people still of my age on that sort of cusp that don't, but um, the, uh, the seal Polk talks about this. Uh, they were saying that when they're writing in that zone, it's like the, the mind palace. And that's how I get like, when I'm really in a story, I am in the mind palace. There's nothing else really that I want to do except write the story. And when I'm in that layer of hyper-focus, I, I can't get too bogged down in the tools because it really does break my flow. So I end up doing a lot of the sort of detail stuff in the editing process. And that's when I use, I love Google Keep because Google Keep is just lists. It's just checklists. And I can have a, it's kind of a hybrid between, um, if you've ever used, um, what is it called? Like the Kanban board style um, and Google Docs. And so you can create these multi-tiered lists, which also makes me very happy to have subcategories because that's also very helpful. So I'll have that open as I'm editing um, to remind myself of things and to check back on things as well. And then I'm I'm just exceptionally visual. I didn't. I was talking about hyperphantasia this week, and and you know I am I have hyperphantasia. Like I can imagine 
tastes, smells, touches, everything uh, when I'm when I'm reading and writing. And so a lot of what I same do Same friend, is, same. <laughs> like all three of us so are, are there. I'm like, yeah, like you're so descriptive. I'm like, you're only getting like a quarter of what's in my head. I can never quite get to that level. But um, in in those details is, is important for me to have that visual aspect. So I use Pinterest a lot, um, especially for like just aesthetic overall feel and mm-hmm. kind of building these boards that are, are look and feel. So when I'm stuck, I can kind of go and just sort of sort stuff in there and it kind of triggers things to, to keep moving. And then, like I said, I've been using Obsidian, which you can also use as a wiki, which is really great. So all these things can be linked together and, uh, and then you can actually publish it online. So you can have a version of it that you can look at. That's basically a website. And if you want to share it with other people, you can also do that. So that's been really, really helpful for me. I, it is a weakness though, because I think where it's gotten harder for me is, you know, I'm I'm lucky enough to be publishing multiple books series and going back and forth between the two, the mind palaceness is is no longer I'm not free to just kind of like, okay, today we're turning to, you know, Regency England. Well, tomorrow we've got to be in, you know, Arthurian uh, you know, worlds that's when I I'm learning the limits of my own brain because I do have a semi-eidetic memory. So I can actually remember like what parts of the page I wrote things on, like how far in a book was. If I have a, a layout of a castle or something, I can, I can sort of see it in my head as I'm writing, but only when I'm in mind palace mode, if I'm not in mind palace mode and I'm an editor, professional writer, put your pants on and start writing no matter what. Um, <laughs> that's when I'm realizing I really do have to get better about it. Um, and so I'm always open to, to kind of hearing about other people's tools. I, I wish I could be a, a tactile person. It just, I, my mind is moving so fast and the book is all often changing so fast that it would be out of date, like within 10 minutes. <laughs> I will say the one thing I have to do tactilely that I have to do with, with pencil and paper are the maps. Um, even if I'm like adjusting, you know, for the oven cycle, the Mediterranean map is largely just adjusted from but I had to do it myself. I had to print out a blank one and, and draw my own lines. When I've created my own countries and things like that, I have to have it physically in front of me. I can't use the auto generators. I find them too difficult to tweak. Like, <laughs> I, I, Marshall, I know you love playing with those. And they're fun to play with. And they give me good ideas sometimes. But to actually set my map, I have to draw it myself. And what I've started doing is I draw the one version that's just very basic and then I photocopy it so that I can make like the topographical map and the political map and the different kinds of maps that I need that I can I can play coloring book with them. But I have that is one thing I have to have physically. I'm not sure why. Why, why is that like the one thing I really I really need that way? So much. I mean, I, I do think that there's a lot to be said about doing those things tactic tactilely tactilely tactic <laughs> but like manner. By hand. By hand. <laughs> but like, I mean, for example, I mean, y'all see the Meridian world. We can. We me. can. They're behind him. We verify that for you, listeners. You can find them online. I've shared it to, to the Discord and it's been on my website. So, But like the original, original version was A, drawn by hand. And it wasn't even drawn by hand like this. It was drawn as a supercontinent and then physically cut up. And the, to like do oh that's the... fun <laughs> oh oh man now <laughs> I want to do that Gia situation that's yeah. awesome now I want to so do that, that oh my god it, to create more of that sense of like things moving around over the course of time that's that's really rad that's I, so I, nerdy I, and so fun <laughs> it is yeah and then tracing that again and then photocopying that and then 
getting that scanned to a computer because it was 1993 you had to like go to a shop to like have it oh i i'm not tactile with that stuff and unfortunately but i think part of that is again being in a graphic design world for so long and doing it it, that's just how my brain naturally goes and i'm so much faster I do love painting and drawing, but um, I use Incarnate, which a lot of folks use for uh, RPGs. And I'm just able to, in a pretty short amount of time, really get an understanding. And I get I get really nerdy about like environment and climate and things like that. And I, I need to be able to see like what kind of mountains are here and if the mountains are here and then the jet streams coming through here, like how's that going to impact the dry air, the wet air? It's it's probably a little bit of a sickness, but um, but those maps they are so important to have. And for me, I need them to look as cool as possible because I have like the dopamine factor. And if it doesn't look cool enough to me um, for my world, then I don't like I, I get really. I often do multiple versions of something before I find what what really works. Although I like city maps to be more like direct, like not drafty, but more just uh, sketch like. I guess more sort of you know like almost like lithograph style versus any kind of real sort of things. But I also, like I said, I love house layouts, home layouts, that kind of thing is really, if you have a big castle, oh, which is I essentially a city like of itself, you know, how does, where's the Bailey, you know, where's the, you know, where's, where's all the, the bulwarks and all the, you know, the mots. Uh, <laughs> how do, how do we uh, put all this stuff together and how does it feel cohesive? Cause I think, you can feel that again, like, and sometimes I've read some books where I'm like, I don't think they know where they, I, I can't imagine where we are in this castle. It feels like it's just long hallways and little tiny rooms. You know, there doesn't actually feel like there's a sense of connection. And that's where I think having these visual pieces are so important. Yeah. I mean, I find the works where you get that sense of space, even if it's just from the writing, that you at least feel that the author has worked out like, okay, if this person is screaming for help here, you know, can this person, this other character here, can they hear them? And if so, what's it going to take to get over to where they need help and, and things like that. And so often you don't get that sense of space that, you know, and, and I think that is such a, even, even on the most micro level, like if it's just about a house or a spaceship, just knowing how it's physically laid out, that kind of world building is just as important as as a whole world map. And if you're lucky enough to travel, get taking pictures. I take pictures everywhere that I go because you also cannot quite get that sense of scale. Like the first time I went to Biltmore, like I knew there were big houses. I understood what a big house was conceptually, but to be in the in that house and to see that scale, it's just changes how you think about staging anything in in that kind of space. One of the things I did researching for for the Avon cycle was when I was in Rome, I timed myself walking from place to place because in Rome, most of the roads are more or less the same as they were <laughs> centuries and centuries and centuries of major roads, except for where they've been cut through um, by fascists. Fuck you, Mussolini. Bulldozed right through the imperial form. Anyway, um... <laughs> But broadly, like, okay, how long would it take me to get from this point on the Palatine Hill over to the Aventine Hill? I can still do that in a way that is equivalent enough to what my characters would be doing. Um, And that means I have an insane chart of things like that, that were just me timing myself walking places. (laughs) But that's awesome because distances are another one of those things. And like if people are meeting from, like if something's happening in the forum, and how long is it going to take for people to hear about it and then get there and, and... Sometimes 
I, I, my writing ends up being very particular about that. And sometimes I hand wave it a little because it's like, oh, logistically, this does not make sense. But I'm going to apply the rule of cool because I need them to all arrive here at the same time. So I'm going to be really vague about how much time has passed. And uh, the scene works. No one knows. No one cares. <laughs> but I'm making it a choice. It's a choice, not not just not caring. Well, and I think that, that that's that's the mark of a good world builder is that you've built enough good momentum and trust in your reader that when you have those moments where you kind of need to hand wave, it doesn't become as noticeable. It's, I have read a lot of books where it's like, do they realize how long this is or what <laughs> romance? You see this a lot. Do you realize how gross and sweaty people are who have not had access to a shower and have been riding horses for days are? Because <laughs> I don't think you understand how bad humans smell, let alone humans on top of horses there's a lot of friction and a lot of unpleasantness going on and intimacy may be a little more challenging whether or not that's something you're into and no shaming here. It's just something that you don't see take it personally. I, I, I love bath scenes for that reason. Like it's a great excuse to consider these things and one can bathe in rivers and lakes and bathtubs and things of that nature. But yes, distance, you know, how, how these things culturally impact all of these uh, little details build yeah. that rapport with your audience. Things like how much conversation can you actually get done during this particular kind of dance, right? And different kinds of dances, you can have different yes. kinds of conversations. Um, how long is the dance? How much conversation can you logically have during this dance set? Um, I really liked the 2005 Pride and Prejudice for that, that it showed like the way you yes. converse during some of these these dances is in bits and pieces as you pass each other. And I'm like, that's hilarious. And I love it. It's kind of like social media. I mean, yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like I'm picking up like three different things. I don't even know what's happening here. But, you know, it's that's life. That's what makes it feel real. It makes it feel like real people are doing these things. Yeah. And I mean, I talk about this a lot, but the smell of silk, silk when it gets wet often has a very funky mm, smell yeah. to it. And you're talking about a time where, yes, people doused in perfumes, but human smell was a lot more common than it is today where we have these very high test deodorants that kind of strip us all of our of our smells. So you'd walk into a dance hall and it would smell like sweat and clothing that was in sweat. And, you know, that's, you don't often see that. Or, or the fact that silk stains liquids very, like mm. anything uh, wet is going to just completely show up as sweat marks. So people who are wearing beautiful silk gowns often had pit stains yeah man. i mean that's what we do that's how we sweat so unless you figure out a way magically that people don't do that which is also <laughs> totally within your rights if you don't want to deal with it i'd be up for that oh god i was <laughs> sweating is annoying i'd take that spell in an instant yeah absolutely <laughs> botox for your armpits but it's like <laughs> you know it's it's the magic version of, of mm -hmm, botulism mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah i think i think all of these little things it's little and big right it's little and big mm -hmm. it's creating creating the rapport creating trust and when that trust is violated as a reader is when I notice the world building for good or for ill much more prominently, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. You want people to believe they're in the world, to feel engrossed in it, but you don't want the world to take over the characters. But you also don't want the characters to necessarily take over the world. Although I love a character-driven story. I write character-driven stories. But like everyone's in, in new romance, there's a lot of this where people are like wearing leather jackets with zippers and things. And like you're in a fantasy world and okay, uh, I that bothers me. I need to understand why zippers exist. Um, this is going to take me a while, but I realize I'm not your average reader. Tight lacing. I mean, in societies that don't have access to the materials that you need for tight lacing, spring steel man drives me nuts, and it, and it yanks me out of the story. Yeah, 
several episodes back, we had Sean McGuire on who talked about, like, how does your fantasy world have bras? Going through the history of, like, it's like, if you didn't have this thing with metal shortage, there are examples of where, like, because the work wasn't done and you know, the writer just made a presumption, then then they presumed badly. <laughs> and some of the times that can be the sort of presumption that you stumble into because you don't necessarily know better on a hands-on sort of way. Like, it's in as much as you intellectually know, yes, if you walk into that dance hall, you're going to be hit with that waft of human scent. Have you been to a prom? Have you, like, have you ever had to chaperone a prom? Like, with bad ventilation? Yeah. (laughs) And that, you know, yes, if you've been, you know, if you've been out riding all day, you're going to smell of horse and human and nastiness and not necessarily the time for sexy time. But if you've not physically done that with horses and have just seen movies, it's hard to like wrap your, even if you know it intellectually, it's hard to wrap your head around it emotionally. If you've not had that sort of lived experience of doing that sort of thing. Yeah. And that that's, again, I think where it comes to, thinking about the world through the eyes of your characters, right? Yeah. Because for some people, I mean, I am so much more sensitive to smells than my husband is. I'll be like, what is that smell? He's like, I don't smell it. I'm like, it smells like socks in here. And I found out that it was our our bath mats in the bathroom because <laughs> our kids don't know how to get out of the shower. They just take all the water with them and then just like <laughs> dump it on the floor. But he couldn't, he couldn't smell that. And so and just like patterns on dresses, like most people look at flower, it's a, it's a floral pattern. Meanwhile, I'm going, oh, it's this, this that, and that, and chintz, but this one, um, you know, this looks like this was adapted from here or paisley or whatever. But I have to take, take a step back when I'm doing that as well and think, okay, I might know this as Natanya the writer, but is this character, do they care what this material feels like? Do they care what color it is? Or is it, or do I need to take another step back and say, okay, maybe they don't, but it's important that the reader knows this because it's part of the world itself and it will be enrich them later on. So it is this delicate, it's, it's very much spinning plates, but you have to decide which plates you want to spin and hold what the pattern on them looks like. <laughs> and then which plates you serve up. Yeah. Yeah. Which ones actually make it to the page. Yeah. And that's, well, I was thinking about your indexes earlier, Marshall, and I remember getting the Lord of the Rings index. Do you know, it was printed at some point because I I had it and it was amazing because it was just an index. (laughs) It told you where you could find everything in the Lord of the Rings, which how cool is that? Like that, that to me is like the ultimate fan love, right? If someone was like, indexed my work and was like oh she mentioned chintz in these six works and you know, we talk we talk about taffeta here and you know this is the this is the religion in this place and that place but with with someone who has a very cohesive like your world is it's a very cohesive oeuvre of books right um that's pretty phenomenal i i remember fe- feeling like maybe this was real because i was really young when i read it you know i was like is this maybe this is real like maybe, maybe this <laughs> no one would make it. an index for something so, fake. <laughs> it, it feels so plausible. I mean, that's the real goal is is to get people who were the children that that we are now, <laughs> like like convincing people, even if they might know better, that maybe it could be real somewhere. So, how about our changing during editing between books? We've all written series. <laughs> yeah. How how do you? And like, what's the longest period, Marshall? What is your, what is the the time between yours? I'm just curious because I think that makes a difference too. 
You mean in like when life? you started the first one versus where you're working? How many years do you have in human your own years? <laughs> I mean, when I first, I mean, like I, th- I started making the world in 1993, and you know, wrote the first draft of Thorn of Denton Hill in 2007, and then you know, and here we are in you know 2023, just you know, so that's. 30 years of like things going on in the world and there's been you know i've regularly gone through and i do have because like you know we asked before about you know templates or questionnaires i do have a template for what i call the cultural documents of each country or or such just because you know that is a useful format to me in terms of how the culture operates and I will reg- I just recently did another like pass through of these and like making tweaks and changes because you know some of those things I last wrote twenty years ago and some of them like ooh that's 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 not there was there 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 was a little bit too too much you know unchecked Anglocentrism in, in, yeah. <laughs> in this particular document. Oh, yeah. And and let's 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 examine that and and did some rewrites of that. So I did some of that just in this past year, and with that sort of like reworked those templates into something that's more useful to me now. And I found in since right now I'm putting together new projects in completely new worlds, I found those templates a useful tool to force myself to ask those questions now before I start like the real writing process mm. and then to like put together a much smaller, you know, world Bible for, for, for those books, but then to still have that, that breakdown where I understand, you know, the who, what, where, when, why, and hows of, of those worlds, which is literally how I organize things. I've, you know, who for characters, where for, for locations, when's for history, what and how and why are different levels of of basically different levels of glossary but it's like you know physical mm-hmm. things you know social concepts metaphysical concepts and then using that as and i have that all like in things that are pinned on the discord but we'll, we'll probably put it in the show notes so that people can you know because i'm more than happy to share it all this absurd stuff that i've put together it and encourage listeners to take it and rip it apart and put it back together in the ways that make sense to you because the things that make sense to me do not make sense to to other people and mm-hmm. but yeah like it's it's been a 30 year process with this world and you know there's been there's been a lot of growth of me going like ooh this doesn't quite work or ooh this was more colonialism than i thought it was <laughs> But also that, you know, I worked on addressing the question of like with each of these documents, what is the what is the point of view these documents are written from? Yeah. Is it this like omniscient narrator voice that just like all of this is objectively true? Or is it from the point of view of somebody from one nation and it's going to have those biases baked in, which is on some level an easier way to write them because you're going to have your own biases baked in and to like intentionally lean into that rather than just you know stumble around thinking you're writing objective truths that are like really problematic <laughs> to just you know embrace like yeah this was written by a problematic dude who you know who maybe 
was doing his best, but his best is still... <laughs> because that's all I'm doing. I'm trying to do my best. I think what made me think about that was that, you know, I, I wrote Queen of None in 2009, 2010, and it wasn't published until 2020. And then I wrote the other two books in the last couple of years. And that's been... I've been a control effer. I mean, that's what I've. That sounds, sounds so so much more body than it is. It does seem dirty. I'm, I'm a control effer. Oh, you know what I mean, um, because I had to. I had to, and, and it wasn't the same version that I wrote ten years ago. Obviously, I'd rewritten sure. it for years and years and years before I finally found a home for it. What was really interesting, I think, where point of view helps with world building and point of view helps with answering some of these questions, is that when you do screw up. <laughs> You can say, oh, that's how she remembers that conversation, but it didn't actually <laughs> happen that way. Or my favorite was, oh, this character was lying to her, and then I can fix it in the one afterwards. Because there's once you have it published and set in stone, there's only so far you can really take it. I have made some changes. I've done what you've done. I did some revisions to some of the novels that I had when I was when I got my rights back and I was able to do that. Found some pretty to me, rather revolting stuff that I just didn't even think was bad. Just and I've learned a lot about describing people of different races than mine. I've learned a lot about describing body shapes and things of that nature. It's all part of the world building. Sure, if you decide that that's how it is in your world, you can get away with it, I guess, if you want to. But for me personally, that was me. Did not want to have that happen. <laughs> but we also grow as writers and we grow as world builders. And I think we intuitively over time gravitate toward what serves us best to tell that story. And when you become a writer on deadline, when you become a writer in this world, you have to find the tools that are going to work for you now. Um, you don't have the time when the clock is ticking down to continually try a new tool every five minutes like this person yeah. here. So you have that. That's where that discipline, I think, comes in as a world builder um, to ask, to, to be really honest with yourself. And that's what I, I've, I've really tried to do is be like, okay, Am, am I opening up a can of worms that's just going to delay me more? Or is this actually going to help me? Um, or is my current process making myself, making me miserable? Maybe. And I did, I just went back to writing in word. Like it turned out that that was the most, if I can get it right with the right fonts and spacing and everything, that's what works for me. And then I keep everything else in Google docs and in, um, in keep and in obsidian. So I've got my workflow, but I'm always open still to, to learning and growing. That's part of the journey, everybody. It is. And I talked a little bit about how I've been trying like different things over the past year. And guess what? They did not work. So I'm going back to the way I've done it before. <laughs> but that's still a process. You know, it's it's still part of helping me sort things out in my head. Um, Natanya, I loved what you said about using point of view to get yourself out of world building holes between books, because I've definitely <laughs> done that. It's like, oh, he just didn't understand how this social thing worked. He, he just he didn't get it. So he said it wrong. It's definitely not that I either change my mind about what it should be or fucking forgot what I had him yeah. say two books ago. Uh, it's definitely not the case. He just didn't, he didn't get it. He didn't get it. It it's, can be a really cool challenge though. Like it can be a really cool opportunity to, to world build around that, but yeah. also to, to display that, you know, we as characters and as, as your characters see people in a certain way. And sometimes we see their behavior and no matter, even if the behavior is different, we're seeing it the way that we're expecting to. So I think it can it can give you some opportunities for growth. It can also like, oh, they thought they were from this continent. They were from another continent. They, they were just ignorant. They just assumed because <laughs> yeah. they had dark hair and, and you know, I don't know, a specific kind of birthmark, they were from this place. But it turns out they're from somewhere else. And those are all the kinds of things that can actually enrich our experience because mm -hmm. there are holes. Like very few of us are going to have a watertight story. That's just not how yeah. that's just not how it's going to be. There's but it's where we direct the holes. <laughs> Again, this sounds ridiculous. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's where it's how we're building around those well things, now. right? Yes. 
<laughs> this is world building after dark. <laughs> we should totally do that episode. <laughs> I'm up for it. We should. We haven't done a really saucy one in a while. It's been a bit. We we. I mean, we had the one. We we had episode sixty nine where we, we had, did. Uh, <laughs> where we had uh, Elsa. Where Smithson. we were children <laughs> and could not resist the temptation. It was a very intellectual conversation well, because Elsa's, Elsa's amazing. So yeah. <laughs> So, listeners, you have some delightful things to look forward to. I don't know when, but you will. Is there anything else we need to cover? We'll put some of, like, the just, you know, yeah. various tool things within within the show notes. and Yeah, I will try to link, like, as many of the things that we mentioned as I can remember. <laughs> In the show notes. Yeah, I can send I can send some of them in our yeah. show too. I, I think more than anything, and, and this is back back at the very beginning, Marshall, where you said be a, be wary of yeah. people that say they have the answer for you. Because yeah. there there are so many people trying to make money off of writers and really just take it ends up being just like your subscription service and you end mm-hmm. up paying yeah. thirty dollars a month for something that never really works for you. So yeah. it might and you might be that person that it is a perfect fit for. But be aware when people are making a profit off of your intellectual property and your intellectual organization that that might not be the best solution for the long run. There's no easy answer to this stuff. It really is what works for you and what what is sustainable, right? Because that's that's the biggest thing. If you can't sustain your process of organization Ain't no point. Yep. And the only way to find out is trial and error. So like I know a lot of people swear by World Anvil and looking at it, I can see why. But at the same time, like it does not work for me. It doesn't. Nope. But I can see why it would work for some people. Mm -hmm. And even if it doesn't work for you, you can go through what they have and say, what can I steal Mm -hmm. from here Mm -hmm. and make it useful for me? Which the most important part of any <laughs> any tool and process. <laughs> if I'm thinking of this, someone probably created it and maybe I can mm-hmm. adapt it to what I'm doing to save myself time. So yeah. We here at World Building for Masochists do not give you an answer. We give you 70 answers and tell you to figure out which ones you like. That's it's about possibility. That's how we roll. Yeah. But I, I mean I do think that is always the best way is to, you know rifle through everybody else's toolboxes and find the things that work best for you. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Blue Sky as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.